Welcome to Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Peter Kazarinoff, Professor in Engineering at Portland Community College. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in nanotechnology? Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. That's a great question. How did I get involved in nanotechnology? Well, my background includes a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And after I finished my chemistry degree, I moved on and taught high school chemistry at an old New England boarding school. So think a little bit like Dead Poets Society, but not quite as fancy. That's kind of the boarding school I was teaching in. And while I was teaching high school chemistry, I wanted to have labs that students could do with their hands and that they could touch the materials in the labs. But most typical high school chemistry labs involve things like acids and bases, and you don't want students putting their hands into acid. Or they involve things like oxidizers, and you don't want students to get those on their clothes. Or involve things like precipitation reactions, and those often involve things like silver nitrate, and you also don't want students uh, to get that on them. So I started doing some professional development workshops during the summer in material science. And those material science labs, students can usually touch those materials So say we were doing a lab on the strength of aluminum, you can bend the aluminum bar. Or we did a lab on memory wire, you can bend that wire and then put it in a candle and it'll retake its shape. So those types of material science labs were the ones that I was trying to incorporate into my chemistry course so that students could touch and interact with the materials that was in the lab. And so that sort of led me into nanotechnology through those professional development workshops. For example, one of the labs that I did towards the end of my chemistry teaching career in high school was the Build a Solar Cell Lab out of ITO indium tin oxide coated glass and raspberry juice. And the students would build these simple little solar cells and then measure the voltage that they produced. So that was kind of my entrance into nanotechnology. And after I uh, taught high school for four years, I did a research stint at UC Berkeley in Berkeley, California for a year. And when I was doing research, in that research group, what we were working with was block copolymers polymers that have two different types of units on either end. And I spent a lot of time uh, doing atomic force microscopy on thin films of these block copolymers. I grew up in upstate New York, which doesn't have very many earthquakes. But California, especially the San Francisco region, has lots and lots of mini earthquakes. So while I was sitting there having my atomic force microscope scan across the surface, Every once in a while, all of a sudden, there'd be just a huge line across the image, and my entire image would be ruined from just a teeny little micro tremor. And so I learned sort of firsthand about the size scale that you get when an atomic force microscope is going across the surface compared to the size scale shift that you get even in a teeny, teeny little earthquake. After I did that work at UC Berkeley, I went on to graduate school at the University of Washington. And at the University of Washington, uh, my research was on N-type semiconducting polymers for solar cells and transistors. And we did a bunch of nanotechnology characterization on those type of polymers. 
And from there, I moved on to teaching and working at North Seattle Community College, where we ran a three-state regional nanotechnology education center, and then ultimately moved on to Portland Community College, where I am now. And I teach courses in engineering, and I'm a co-PI on MinTech, which is the National Micro Nanotechnology Education Center which is funded through the National Science Foundation's ATE, Advanced Technological Education Grant Program. So there's so many things I want to follow up with you about. First, I want to start with your bachelor's experience in chemistry. I understand you went to Cornell. And did you have an opportunity to use the user facility that's part of the National Nanotechnology Coordinated Infrastructure while you were studying there? That's a good question, Lisa, because Cornell does have a great nanotechnology user facility. When I was an undergrad, I was a little unsure when I started uh, what I even wanted to do for a career. So about halfway through undergrad, I dropped out for a while and I moved to New York City. And after working in New York City in film and television, I realized that wasn't as much of a sustainable career as I imagined. You'd have to hop from job to job every time a production ended, find the next production that you were going to have to work on. So I decided to go back to Cornell and finish my degree, and I was closest to finishing a degree in chemistry compared to anything else. So I almost sort of fell into teaching chemistry, and I didn't take advantage of the large amount of nanotechnology equipment that was at Cornell at the time. One thing I'd like to mention, though, is that Cornell does have a particle accelerator. It's called the synchrotron, and it runs underneath the intramural practice fields at Cornell. And one of the summers that I was at Cornell, I worked at the synchrotron. My job was to help port over manuals that were written on paper onto the World Wide Web. This was a while ago, and putting manuals online was a fairly novel thing at that point. And during the summer, they would shut down the particle accelerator, which was a large ring that was underneath the ground. And they had these little BMX bikes that had baskets on them. And you could ride the bikes through the ring tunnel when the synchrotron was turned off. And that was always kind of thrilling, imagining that I was traveling like one of those particles through the particle accelerator on a bike. So the synchrotron wasn't part of the nanotechnology user facility, but they did use the x-rays that came off of the synchrotron in order to characterize things such as proteins or do other x-ray diffraction studies. Well, I can see you've had a lot of experiences that have influenced your frame of reference and certainly play a role in your teaching with your students. So can you share an example of a lesson or an activity or a discovery that made your students excited about nanotechnology? When I was teaching at North Seattle Community College, one of the things that we had was a scanning electron microscope. And it wasn't as high-powered as the microscopes that you mentioned that are at Cornell, but it was certainly able to image down to the submicron size scale. And I asked students in our nanotechnology characterization class to bring in something that was meaningful to them and to image that. And one of my students brought in a piece of their hair 
And the student said, well, I want to see what split ends really look like. And so they sputter-coated that split end with a thin film of gold in our sputter coater and then put it into the scanning electron microscope and imaged the split end of the hair. Hairs are around 60 microns or so in width, depends on each individual. And the student was able to see the little particles of split end that came from their hair. So I thought that that one was interesting. We also had a laser scanning confocal microscope, which is used to image biological samples. And one of my students brought in dust mites, the kind that you can find in your house. And that student put one of the dust mites in the laser scanning confocal microscope. And in three dimensions and in time, you could see the little dust mite moving around in the microscope image. And it looked incredibly creepy and made me want to vacuum everywhere in my bedroom. I didn't want dust mites to be anywhere. So those were two examples of things that students had in their real lives. And using nanotechnology characterization, they were able to look deeper into those objects. Eventually at North Seattle Community College, we teamed up with the art department and we created a gallery exposition piece that contained images from the scanning electron microscope and the laser scanning confocal microscope. And we put up those images along with other art department images for people to come and view. I want to get your take and your thoughts on the, the concept of interdisciplinarity. I mean, you've talked a little bit about chemistry and precipitation. You've talked about building solar cells, black copolymers. Um, so you've talked about a variety of different things that I would mentally assign to different disciplines. But how does that manifest itself in your teaching? That's a great question, Lisa, because nanotechnology isn't confined just to one particular subject area. It touches lots of different subject areas. One example that I would point to is just the relationship between nanotechnology and biology. Many large cities have medical schools or large hospital systems, and students that are trained on instruments such as scanning electron microscopes and transmission electron microscopes can go and work in those user facilities at the hospitals and image medical samples that are either for research or for diagnosis. So there is a big relationship between biology and health and nanotechnology. Another example is that some of the very thin film coatings that are used in nanotechnology can be coated on the surface of tools that are used in manufacturing. So students that learn how to sputter coat gold, for instance, uh, that we use to image samples in the scanning electron microscope, similar technology is used to coat the surface of tools that are used in machine shops and heavy manufacturing. So there's a relationship between nanotechnology and heavy manufacturing as well. Another place is in energy. So solar cells contain thin layers of N-type and P-type silicon. And the same techniques that you use for doping semiconductor wafers in order to make microchips are used to produce solar cells. So there's a relationship between nanotechnology and the energy industry as well. 
So I think that there are a lot of ways that nanotechnology touches many different disciplines and is not confined just to nanotechnology itself. So I want to explore your role as co-principal investigator for the Micro Nanotechnology Education Center. Can you talk about the the goals of that activity and and maybe a little bit more about uh, what your activities entail? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the Micro Nanotechnology Education Center. The abbreviation that we use for that is MinTech. MNT-EC. And MinTech's mission is to further the education of technicians that work in the micro and nanotechnology area. So kind of what this means is that community colleges all across the country have two-year technician education programs. And students from those programs end up working in the micro-nano industry. They could end up working in semiconductor and build microchips. They could end up working in biotech and building things like vaccines and diagnosis. They could work in other areas like energy or in materials. But there are some commonalities across all of those programs at community colleges. And our mission is to support those programs and to connect those programs. Because the skills that a technician in Albany, New York, that goes and works at Global Foundries needs is going to be very similar to the skills that a technician in Portland, Oregon, that works at Intel is going to need. And so we try to help coordinate between those programs and make sure that best practices are shared across the country. So I understand that one of your activities as part of MinTech is to host a podcast series called The Talking Technicians. Can you share a little bit about that podcast? Talking Technicians is my podcast funded through MinTech, which involves stories from working technicians. We want to highlight and show what technicians do, where technicians come from, and who are technicians that work in the micro nano industry. So in each episode, I interview a working technician and hear their story. I hear about where they came from. I hear about what their education and work experience was like. And we talk about what their current job is, what are some things that they have to do day to day, and what are the benefits of being a technician. And I hope to encourage current students to become technicians, and I hope that faculty who teach technicians can bring away some of the things that their students are going to do once they graduate. So I think that's really exciting because I know that when I talk to students, they're largely unaware of what their future looks like and what the job really is that they are going through school to go into. So that's really exciting that you're doing that. What are some of the surprising things or lessons that you've learned by talking to working technicians? One of the things that I've learned is that age doesn't matter in terms of technician education. I've had technicians on the podcast that came right out of high school and went to community college, and we've had technicians on the podcast that are close to retirement age. So you don't have to come right out of high school to go in a technician education program. Uh, You could be older, you can be younger, and you can be anywhere in between. Another thing that I've learned is about education level. You don't need to start off with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree to work in the micro-nano industry. 
Some of the technicians I've interviewed had just high school diplomas when they started. Other technicians I've interviewed had bachelor's degrees and they were having trouble finding work in the area that they got their degree in and then went back to community college to get a two-year technician degree so they could change careers. So you can start at any age and you can kind of start at any education level too if you want to be a technician in micro and nano. Are there any surprises that, that you found when you talked with working technicians? One of the big surprises that I heard from working technicians was how their lives changed once they became technicians. Some of the technicians that I talked to used to live with their parents, and after they became technicians, they were able to find and pay for their own place. One of the technicians that I interviewed was able to buy a house for the first time and his parents and grandparents were able to live with them. Another technician that I interviewed was a single working mother, and she was able to pay for childcare and now able to put her children into private school after she became a working technician. And it just completely changed her life, being able to have full-time childcare for her kids. And other technicians that I spoke with also were able to secure health care and dental care, and they were able to care for themselves in ways that they weren't able to before. And so if you think that being a technician isn't a life-changing experience, for technicians that I've talked to, it really has transformed their lives, being able to work in the micro and nano industry. Is that one of the reasons you wanted to teach at the community college level? One of the reasons was to help transform lives through technician education. And another reason that I wanted to teach at community college was just the diversity of students. When I was at the University of Washington doing my graduate work, I TA'd some of the engineering courses. And there was some diversity in the student body, but most of the students came from households that could pay for a four-year school. And most of the students were of the age group just out of high school, they entered college. Whereas at community college, there was a much greater diversity in range of ages, range of backgrounds in the courses that I taught. And I really enjoyed teaching all different types of students. And that's one of the reasons that I like teaching at community college. Another big reason is just class size. When I was at the University of Washington, the introductory engineering courses had hundreds of students in them, and it just felt very distant, and I didn't feel like I got to know any individual student particularly well. Whereas at Portland Community College, most of my courses are capped at 24 students, and I get to know the students. I get to know their lives and their struggles and their successes, and it's just a lot more rewarding when you know the students that you're teaching. So do you have any advice that you would share with high school students that are considering a career in micro and nanotechnologies? I guess what I would say is that you have a lot of options and a lot of those options are available to you even if you don't think that they are. Most high school students, I don't think, know what it's like to work in the micro nano industry because they don't interact with those type of technicians or workers very often, if at all. 
Whereas most of students in high school have interacted with a teacher, interacted with a nurse, interacted with people that work at the grocery store, those types of public-facing professions. But most of the people who work in the nano industry, they don't interact with others outside their industry very often. And yet working in the nano industry is an option for high school students. So one thing I would just say to them is you can work in the micro and nano industry. And after getting a two-year degree at a community college, you can earn $50,000 or more. And then while you're doing that work, you could continue on in your studies and get a four-year engineering degree or change career paths altogether. So I think that the option for students of first getting a two-year technician degree, possibly working in the industry that they're interested in for a little while, and then finishing a four-year degree afterwards is a great option. And students can end up having very little or zero debt after their experience because sometimes employers will pay for the rest of their four-year degree. So I just hope that high school students know that community college is available to them and that two-year degrees at community college can lead to either well-paying jobs or long-term careers. And once they get those jobs, if they want to further their education, they certainly can. I appreciate the work you do and the passion that you bring to it. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Lisa, thank you so much for letting me share my story and talking about working with students and about how nano is in our lives right now. I guess the last thing that I'd like to leave with is just that there are lots of jobs right now for technicians in the micro nano industry. We're seeing a large expansion in semiconductor manufacturing in the United States right now. There are fabs which are going to be built in the Arizona industry, a fab outside Albany, which is growing, a new fab in Texas, and the fabs that are in Portland are currently expanding right now. Fabs are the words that I use for the factories that manufacture microchips. So that means there are going to be a lot of jobs in that industry coming up. And another place that a lot of jobs are present in right now are the biotech sector. We're doing a lot of work to make things like vaccines and to do diagnostic testing. And nanotechnology is involved in that biotechnology work too. So if you're interested in getting a high paying career, which has opportunity for advancement, now is a great time to work as a technician in the micro nano industry. 